itself were transcended in your miracle work of pain for our sins, Lord Jesus. But you conquered the enemy, the devil, in the same act. Lord, in end, satisfying the payment that our sin deserved and destroying the works of the devil in your work on Calvary, we realize our purpose in gathering. We realize our salvation. For this, you are so worthy and deserving of praise that a lifetime is too short for us to give you all that you deserve. So we thank you for glory one day that because of your resurrection, so will we rise one day to praise you forevermore. This day, as we look forward to these truths and promises that are guaranteed in your holy word, I pray that you would strengthen our souls. Strengthen us, Lord, for the trials and the difficulties between now and then. Equip us to be consistent and faithful in our walk with you so we might proclaim the hope of the everlasting salvation in Christ alone to the lost. Also, Lord, we pray that you would give us a consistency in holiness as we begin ever increasing to be conformed to the image of Christ our Lord. I pray that the passions of our former ignorance and the traditions inherited from our forefathers would be a thing of the past and that ever more so we would place Christ and His work in the center of our attention as the goal of our ambitions and as our chief end as we seek to magnify you in this, our Christian life. If there are any lost in the hearing of your proclaimed word today, we pray that through the preaching of the gospel that you would awaken them in their death and transgressions unto resurrection life, that they might turn from sin and turn to Christ, place faith in Him alone. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which never fails. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word abides forever. Now, as we turn to your word today, I pray that you would arrest our attention by its precepts and that you would equip us through its proclamation. Again, to the praise of your name and the advance of your kingdom and the growth of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you boys could uh, bring up those lights in the back when you get a chance. This morning we turn our attention to the Word of God, and I encourage you to do so by turning to 1 Peter with me today. Today concludes our sermon series. Once a Sunday, or once a month, the first Sunday of the month, we spend some time in a particular book, which coincides with Communion Sunday. We've been going through a study of 1 Peter along these lines, and we concluded the, uh, chapter, the last sermon from chapter 5 last month. And today, as is our tradition here, is an overview message. The goal today, the aim in preaching, is to consolidate the message of 1 Peter, or to summarize 1 Peter for the equipping of the church to the glory of God. A little disclaimer, this uh, message is a little different than normal. Uh, we will take larger bodies of text, touching upon references throughout the whole book, again in summary fashion. The title of this morning's message is Sufficient Grace and Peace. And to open our study today, would you stand once more out of reverence for God's Word? And I just want to read to you the beginning and the end of 1 Peter, which sets the tone and goes over the purpose that the Apostle has in writing. Hear now the Holy Word of God. 1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So when you're going over the theme and the main ideas of any particular book, it is almost always important to consider the opening and closing. Think of it as bookends, the way First Peter is introduced and the way it closes. I trust as we read those passages, you notice similar themes. The letter of First Peter opens and closes with salutations. So that would be a greeting to the church. These distant believers who occupies, occupy some outposts for the glory of God amid, at this time, a largely pagan culture in greater Asia Minor, including areas like Pontius, Galatia, and Cappadocia, they needed encouragement, and so this letter was written and sent, and it came by way of courier, presumably Silas, brought the letter, as we read in the closing of the book, another name for him, Silvanus, and the letter brought important instructions, salutations, accompanied this letter, Greetings appropriate for the encouragement of the body of believers, of a body of believers facing trying times. Hence, the opening and close include these messages. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, one, two. And later on in chapter 5, we read that the grace of God, or that a reiteration of the significance and priority of grace, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring this, that this is the true grace of God. And then, of course, the closing sentence, peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. So from these two passages, I glean the title of my message today, Sufficient Grace and Peace. That could be a working theme or a title for 1 Peter, may I submit, Sufficient Grace and Peace. Another working title that I had, you know, sometimes I do this, I give multiple titles, Through Suffering. One of the other major themes of 1 Peter is the need for sufficient grace and peace. And that is the suffering, the hardship, the trial, the grievous and fiery trial in some cases that this church in particular was enduring. Peter reminds the church that Christians are no, stranger, are no strangers to suffering. In fact, without suffering, there would be no salvation. Peter's message time and again reiterated throughout the text is that the gospel came to us via suffering. Suffering unto glory. The suffering of Jesus Christ on Calvary purchased the hope of eternal life. And thus, suffering... Uh, this suffering and the gospel that came with it is sufficient to grant us assurance of grace and peace that will carry us through any of our own trials and temptations and difficulties, hardships, persecutions that we are called to endure along the way. And even more so, God has purposes in this intermediate time of difficulty. And among these purposes is to purify us, to sanctify the church, and to equip her to be more like her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are major themes in the book. Other key features reinforce Peter's purpose in writing. As Peter employs the analogy of exile and pilgrimage in, an, uh, in addressing outposts of believers in a pagan culture, he continually refers to sources of absolute certainty. As he has said that he wishes for the church, that peace and grace 
would abide in her, he gives reasons to assure them that this is the case. In other words, where are peace and grace to be found? And how do we know that they are ours? <coughs> There's a major theme verse in 419, which, goes, which reads as follows. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I've suggested that that verse is sort of like a melodic line or major theme passage. Reading again, therefore, that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So how can we be assured in that verse of grace and peace? We can be assured if we know that our souls are in the care of a faithful creator. More grounds for certainty are provided. This per, while this verse provides something of an imperative or a command, in other words, or while some verses provide an imperative or a command, like this one, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. So there's a directive, an instruction, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Many other passages that Peter employs throughout the course of the book are brimming with reasons that we can trust our souls to a faithful creator. Among them, verses uh, 1 through 3, he continue, by the way, he continues to refer to these sources of absolute certainty, and they're gleaned from the Word of God and from the work of God in salvation. Examples of this, and we'll touch on these, a few of them later in the body of our message today. Chapter 1, 3 through 5, and 18 through 21, Peter refers to our imperishable inheritance. inheritance. So reasons we can trust our faithful Creator? Our absolute certainty of inheritance, that is, promises in the gospel. It is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. 1, 23-24, the forever word of God. Again, absolute certainty. Peter is referring to permanence. And in this case, he's citing from the Old Testament scripture saying, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God abides forever. Where else do we glean absolute certainty? Chapter 2, 6-7, through seven, Jesus Christ is, re is referred to as our chief cornerstone. That is, absolute foundational reality, fixed, immovable, sturdy, and stable, that which a building can be properly constructed and endure any earthquake of trial when the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is fitted in place. Again, a picture of stability or an encouragement of absolute certainty in 3, 21 through 22, reference to the resurrection and ascension. If our Lord and Savior defied the grave and ascended into glory, and if, if, and if the closing phrase of 1 Peter is true, you are in him, then his resurrection and ascension foretells your own resurrection from the dead and your own reunion with the Lord in glory in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth one day. And finally, in chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, there's a reassurance of personal and specific intentions of God for his church through suffering. And this kind of concluding certainty reference, I suggest, also provides a possible outline for the entire book. And this verse comes to us in 5.10 and 11. So if you want to turn there, 1 Peter 5.10 and 11, this verse, I suggest, provides for us something of a way to organize the entire book of 1 Peter. The apostle says the following, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
You can be guaranteed sufficient grace and peace. You can be guaranteed safe passage through suffering when you know that all the while God has a personal commitment to his church to do four things, to restore her, to confirm his bride, to strengthen his church, and to establish the body of Christ. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Perhaps these four words could uh, structure the entire book. Restore, chapters 1 into 2, 3. Confirm, the remaining part of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Strengthen, chapter 4, and establish, chapter 5. So let's just give a brief overview. Imagine a drone photo, right? So for years and years in the history of photography, unless you could afford to rent a helicopter, pictures were limited to a more, you know, kind of short-sighted view. You're standing in front of the object. But now I've noticed in searching around on real estate, a whole new perspective has come into view. Now we got drones, an inexpensive way to loft a camera overhead. And man, those lake places look great when you can see that bird's eye aerial view. And now people are shopping for property as if they were an eagle, right? So today's message is something like the drone footage. You take that picture or you take that perspective and you lift it up to that vantage point and give an overview. And so in the purposes of God reassuring his long-suffering church, we find grounds for restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and establishment in the course of this book, and that could perhaps structure the entire thing. So that's our heading today. The purposes of God reassuring his long-suffering church. His church can suffer well, she can suffer long, she can endure, and she can endure victoriously when the church remembers that all the while God is restoring her, confirming the church, strengthening, and establishing. Number one, restore. For the greater part, or all of chapter one and a few verses in chapter two, I suggest that this is a fitting heading. Notice in right from the beginning, we have grounds for the purposes of God to reassure us of our own calling in verses 3. So it's chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God's purposes to restore the church include going to such great lengths that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became a man and in the incarnation took on the burden of paying for our sins by going to Calvary, surviving death by resurrection, though he was dead three days in the grave, though he endured the wrath of God on our account, he nevertheless triumphed over the grave in his resurrection. And this, saints, is a cost of restoration. There is no way that the bridge between you and I, better said, the chasm between uh, you and I and a holy God could be bridged aside from this mighty work of restoration. Thus, Peter opens his book declaring as much. This, he says, is, being, it is like being born again to a living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has given us the purpose or reassured us that the purposes of God in salvation include the death of Jesus Christ for the goal, for the stated uh, and prophesied reason all the way back to reunite a sin sinners with a holy God. He goes on to say in verse 4 that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, 
ready to be revealed in the last time. We have reconciliation with the Holy God via the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. This has, according to Peter, implications present and future. In the present, this means or this purpose of restoration gives us reason to endure the difficulties along the way. In the future, we know that this restoration will, re will be fully manifest. It will come to fruition. This is a salvation not only experienced in part now, but it is ready to be revealed at the last time. He goes on to say that in the future, we will, because of this means, or because God's purposes in restoring, in restoring us to Him, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's verse 9. That salvation fully manifests in our experience. That is full manifest reconciliation with the Holy God. We have full legal reconciliation with the Lord in salvation, in regeneration. But we will have full experienced reconciliation, reunion with the Lord, uh, when we are in heaven one day or when heaven comes to earth and God's ultimate purposes one day. We are born again thus to a living hope. Again in restoration, we have a tested and genuine faith. The purposes of God reassuring His long-suffering church include this reassuring truth, that your faith is genuine, and you know it's genuine because it's been tested. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Listen, there's a purpose in this, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how do you know that the Lord is restoring you when it's proven that your faith is strong enough to resist the trial? And that is to say, through difficulty, grievous trials, and hardship, the fact that you cling to Christ in those desperate times of trial in your life, in the era in which you live, the circumstances you're called to endure, as you cling to Christ through them, that is ground for assurance that God is in the process of restoration. It's certain because of the death of Christ, and it will be yours, so there is a future element. Cling to the outcome of your faith in hope that what Christ has done will secure you to the Lord, even though the pathway between A and B is marked, in some cases, often by grievous and various trials. We are born again to a living hope. We have attested in genuine faith. This becomes more obvious to us during the course of our calling, even our calling in some part to endure suffering. And then, under this call to a living in a frame of mind, recognizing the purposes of God to restore us, there's a call, therefore, to conduct ourselves with fear. Before we get there, though, I should say the following. How glorious is this faith in this gospel that God has given us? In verse 8, we have the following. It says, you, uh, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Prior to that, he has said, Of our inheritance, it is not only imperishable and undefiled, but is kept in heaven. It is guarded by God's power. He later says in verse 10, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully all of this concerning who Christ was. And then later in this, 
A little further down, he says, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So when, we, when you think of the tested and genuine faith that God has given us, how incredible and how awesome is it? You've been born again to a living hope. This salvation, this promise of restoration, this faith that God has given you is a superior inheritance. An inheritance so superior that it is the treasure of heaven. There's no way that you could ever break into the... Now, maybe you've watched those movies where it's a complicated plot and it's a kind of a bank heist and you know, someone is deceived and then someone is tricked and something is stolen and then a getaway car is arranged and you know, five people keep a secret and against all odds, they break into a vault, steal some treasure and get away. Well, there are places on earth that are more secure than others. And there are probably some places on earth that have never been broken into. But there's a place where the greatest treasures of all are hidden that no one is able to break into. That is to say, if your faith and the assurance of your salvation is stored behind the vault door in heaven, there is no enemy of your soul that is going to be able to break in and steal it. This is how superior your inheritance is. Let's say you were the heir of a million dollars, and it came to you by way of a pallet of cash. Well, cash, I don't know how much it would be. Not that much, not a pallet. But anyways, you get this pile of cash, a million dollars. And then you think to yourself, well, how will I secure my inheritance? A safe deposit box? I don't know if I can trust the banks. Buried in my yard? Well, maybe I forget where it is or it eventually rots. So what good is money beneath the dirt, right? But the inheritance that we have spiritually is beyond the perishable elements of this existence. It's kept, if you will, behind the vault door of heaven. It's safe and secure in the safekeeping of the bank of glory. This is the awesome genuineness of our faith. This is the hope of restoration we have. It is one that is kept in heaven for us. It's the treasure of heaven. It's the crescendo of prophecy. This is the focus and this is the attention. This is the theme of what all the prophets were obsessed about of old and proclaimed would come in due course. And now we have received that inheritance of what the prophets proclaimed of old is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's the envy of angels. So is this not encouraging to us? God's purpose is to restore you along the way. You have been born again to a living hope. This faith is proving tested and genuine even through trial. And this is faith is so awesome. It's guarded in glory. It's hailed by prophets. It's envied by angels. So how then shall we live? Verse 13, chapter 1. Therefore, prepare in your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. Later, there's a great phrase describing how to live in light of these times and in light of our salvation. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So conduct yourselves with fear. How do we do this? Well, we conduct ourselves with fear and we embrace the call of gospel restoration by putting behind us, renouncing what Peter describes as passions of our former ignorance. That be in verse 14. We put behind the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. That would be verse 18. All the while recognizing that this is the road of restoration. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then one of those certainty, absolute certainty statements, all flesh is like grass, verse 24. All the glory, like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter reminds 
the church, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So again, he says, you know, again, conduct yourselves with fear. In so many words, here's an application in 2.1. Put aside or put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and so forth. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The purposes of God reassuring His long-suffering church begin with restoration. This is what God is personally accomplishing in your life and in His church. He is restoring us. Second major point, confirmation. Again, a purpose of God in reassuring His long-suffering church is that He is confirming us. Now, as we continue to read in 2, 4 and following, we find language that assures us, it confirms our cornerstone, the foundation of our hope, and therein our identity. As you come to four, to him, that is to Jesus, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And it goes on to say, by way of fulfilled prophecy in Jesus Christ, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. So you get the picture? There is real confirmation of your status and foundation in God's purposes through history, through redemptive history, in knowing that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and that you are a living stone fitted against Him. You see here, this is foundation and identity. He goes on to say, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, 6b, and then 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This helps explain why the church has experienced such pressures, tension, and persecution at this time. It's because the very thing that is foundational and confirms them in their identity is an offense, and it, uh, it, it stands in opposition to the spirit of the age, the spiritual death, the sinful culture, the worldview of that day. And to some degree, of course, these circumstances plague us as well. But remember that the cornerstone and assurance of your salvation, even though it stands as an offense to the unbeliever, it actually confirms that you are His. Its foundation and identity are in view here. So the, the message is as follows. Don't become weary, don't become weak in your resolve or, or in your faith when you live in a culture that rejects your values, the foundation of your truth claims, and the certainty you have in the absolute authority and truth of God's holy word. This culture will wither like grass, and it will fail. But that cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and His word, it will stand forever. And if you stand with the cornerstone Jesus Christ, you too will stand forever. How are we different as a result of being fitted against our cornerstone Christ? Well, the answer to this question continues in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not re had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Cornerstone and identity. The foundation, why we will stand, and who we are because of where we stand are in view. The rest of this passage in 2.13 and into chapter 3, it deals with social order, if you will, human relationships, a kind of horizontal relationships for the Lord's sake, which include interacting with society, with the government as we know it, or as we have it today, even as you know, Peter's audience had to deal with the day-to-day challenges in their time. Secondly, there was relationships within that society. In this case, servant and master are in view. We might think of employer-employee relationships, hierarchical structures within the social environment. And then there's reference to family as well. In other words, Peter says that in, when you are established in Jesus Christ and receive your identity, you also have a perspective that informs you how you are to engage in the social order, in the society in which you find yourself for the Lord's sake. That is to take opportunity, these different relationships, to proclaim the glory of God. Sometimes this comes by way of enduring persecution. Sometimes this comes by way of bold proclamation. Sometimes this comes by sticking out like a sore thumb because your values are completely opposite to what, you know, the cause du jour, the virtue signaling, you know, preferences or trends are on social media at any given time. Nevertheless, who you are in Christ informs how you are to interact in the world and in the time in which he places you. Now, today is the 4th of July. We all know in America what that means, do we not? This is something of a day where we celebrate something of the historical identity of our nation. So on the 4th of July, independence was declared from a higher political authority, namely England and so forth. So we mark, you know, an official separation from a former authority and establishment of an independent nation by this day, you know, roughly speaking. But this 4th of July in America, I wonder if you were to ask 15 people on the street what it means to be American, if you wouldn't get 15 answers. I suspect you would. This 4th of July, in the course of our nation's history, finds us in a profound national identity crisis. Who are we as a people? Do we like what we are as a people? What ought we be as a people? These are questions that are answered only with confusion if you read the blogs that come across the wire of all the talking heads on the internet and television, cable news, etc. Well, we have a, something that we have a standard, on the other hand, that never changes. Our national identity, who we are in Christ, and the reality of what we are and the foundations of who we are never change. And this provides an anchor point from which we can stand and take a stand and proclaim hope to a lost, aimless, dying, confused, and perverse culture, and in many ways, increasingly so. You are a chosen race, after all, Peter tells you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. At the time of Peter's writing, cult prostitution and worship of the pagan deities was very common. It was a common practice, and it was something your neighbors would do on the weekend. In our day, Maybe our pursuits are just as trivial, but less, you know, dramatically perverse. Nevertheless, serving self seems to be the order of the day. And our weekends are, you know, taken up with how to uh, have uh, fun and enjoy ourselves and all of the entertainment and everything along those lines seems to captivate the attention of our culture. And then when it comes to identity, we're thrown into this 
profoundly confusing mix. There are voices all over that tell us that we are who we are by privilege of our birth or by the oppression of our social class or by our preferred sexual identity and preferences. And that list gets longer and longer all the day or, or every day. And we are fragmented by these claims of identity and by the lack of foundations for who we are as a people. But you and I are different than this. We don't need to be caught up in this wave, in this complete chaos, in this sort of circling of the drain of failed self-identity or failed national unity. No, what we do is we stand on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, recognizing that we have an allegiance that even transcends our American citizenship. And here's a good call for us on the 4th of July or any other day. May we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is absolutely no hope for reform, stability, assurance of the future, and confidence, peace, and grace, nationally speaking, outside of turning to the excellencies of him who calls a nation, a people, an individual, out of darkness into his marvelous light. So spending a little time on this point because of a pressing application, it seems appropriate for the moment that confirmation of who we are can actually provide answers for a world lost in their identity, confusion, and sin. We are built as a church on Jesus Christ, and we find our transcending identity in Him, and this never changes, no matter the social pressures, and therefore we provide, as God grants us ability, an anchor in the storm of absolute confusion when we hold out the excellencies of the Word of God that never fails to a culture that's dying for lack of it. Furthermore, in confirmation... We see that there are personal convictions that Peter lays out. In chapter 3, having covered those different relationships, you know, as I mentioned, government, servitude, family, he says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing." He goes on to quote from Psalm 34 in this instance. He says, Whoever desires to love life and seek good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He goes on to speak this way. He closes this section by saying, uh, Even if you should suffer, verse 14, for righteousness' sake, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, said individual, a conviction, in your hearts regard Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. And there again, it's just a personal application of the same principles we were talking about before. Knowing who you are in Christ, knowing that He is your cornerstone and His Word is the foundation of your understanding, provides for you an opportunity to defend the faith and to spread the gospel when asked. This section closes, this confirmation section finally closes with the assurance that is confirmed in the picture of baptism. In verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Corresponds to what? Salvation of Noah and the others of his family through the waters of judgment at that time. And that picture to salvation to come. And baptism pictures the same. He goes on to say, it's not as removal, as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers being subjected to him. You'll notice this a theme in the book of 1 Peter. Time and again, he closes his argument, the ground of his appeal, on the basis that Jesus Christ owns everything. 
that everything is in his dominion and in his control. And the message is this. There is an ark, if you will. There is a means of salvation provided for us through the waters of judgment, deserving of our personal sin in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And there is an ark of preservation to secure the church and her safe passage, even through grievous trial. And we know that because Jesus Christ conquered death. Because of the resurrection and because of the ascension, we too are assured that we will conquer death and we will be ascended to live and abide with him forever. And so this is confirmation of who we are in the Lord. Number three, again, the purposes of God reassuring the long-suffering church. We've covered restoration. We've covered confirmation and now strengthening. God is strengthening us. He says as much in 4.1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Doesn't this remind you of the Apostle Paul when he says in Ephesians to put on the full armor of God? Arm yourself. Those spiritual armaments, both defensive and offensive, prepare you to stand strong in a day when you're tested. Again, the, the themes of the epistles are often similar, though they have different human authors, the same spiritual author, of course. As to uh, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, verse 2, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What Paul is speaking of here is a fortified mindset. We are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. What is that way of thinking? Well, just as the author of Hebrews says, that Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He recognizes God's purpose and intentions, even through the call to suffering, which gave him the grace to embrace the means whereby God would establish the very, uh, the very work of salvation on our behalf. This is the way of thinking that the church is called to embrace her own sufferings. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Have a fortified mindset. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and this will grant you grace, grant you grace to endure. It will grant you grace to endure the pressures from within, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, and the passions from without, basically the peer pressure of the Gentiles and their debauchery and everything that they beg you to join them in. It says in verse 4, When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we are to be strengthened with the mindset of the big picture, right? That drone view that we talked about before, which is kind of the way this message is formatted. We're also supposed to have that, uh, that eternal perspective with respect to the challenges of our day-to-day -day life. If we recognize that God has purpose in these things to strengthen us to stand strong in spite of the pressures coming in our own hearts by, a, by way of sin or the pressures by culture that say, that malign us and mock us and seek to marginalize or even persecute us, when we keep that eternal mindset, we are fortified by these means, we will stand strong. This, the apostle says, is unto Christ's glory. He goes on to say in verses 7 and following, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, a fortified mindset. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. 
Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Here's reference to dominion. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we are strengthened unto a purpose, to glorify Christ. To glorify Christ, we must embrace the challenge of difficult times, as we said before, with a level head, a soft heart, and wise stewardship. And let me pause for another application here. Do we live in times that seem troubling? Are we, do we, just looking at the news and events that surround us, political uncertainties and that national identity crisis, just to name a few I mentioned before, do these not leave us with this sense of imminent doom, potential collapse, of a sense of insecurity, instability, uncertainty about the future? Well, what are, how are we to respond in times like these? Well, Peter gives us instructions. In verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, you could say the sky is falling. So what should we do, panic? No, quite the opposite, counterintuitive, in fact. The end of all things is at hand. The sky might be falling. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. In times of uncertainty, you will shine when you keep a level head. Don't freak out. Don't panic. And don't be frantic in your mental instability, grasping at every last straw for hope. Why would you grasp at straws when you are fitted against your cornerstone, Jesus Christ? Look to the gospel. Listen to the scriptures. Re reassure yourself that the firm footing on, under your feet is able to withstand any earthquake of cultural upheaval or even sin so long as you stand with your Lord Jesus Christ. This will give you a self-controlled mentality, a sober-mindedness, a groundedness. You won't be susceptible to every wind of doctrine, every, you know, lame brain, harebrained promise of hope. You will be established and secure and do this, he says, for the sake of your prayers. And then he says, keep a soft heart in so many words. Be loving. Keep loving one another earnestly. Don't distance yourself from the body of Christ. Draw close in relationship because therein your, the stones will be fitted together. Love one another earnestly. It should be reassuring to you to feel the, the living stone next to you, so to speak, in this analogy, fitted against that stone, Jesus Christ. And the more living stones he gathers and fits together, the stronger the church will be as the picture, is it not? So keep a level head and keep a soft heart. You're going to need it. In times like these, Peter encourages the church. This had to have been ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit to be so immediately relevant in our circumstances. And finally, be good stewards. Good stewards of God's very grace. In other words, if you speak, do so as one who speaks the oracles of God. In other words, have a certain reverence and a certain deliberate commitment to the truth of God's holy word. Again, be stable, be certain, foundation stones. These are the things that are needful. And then if you serve, serve as one, not taking credit for it, but as with the strength that God supplies. Why? That in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, because after all, he owns everything anyways. To him belong glory, dominion, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Finally, in this section of strengthening, we're called to entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing good. That's the theme verse I suggest of 1 Peter, again in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Can you trust God with your soul? You certainly can. 
The enemy would tell you you cannot. You need to rely and lean on all kinds of other things to fortify your soul's position. But don't be deceived. You can entrust your soul to a faithful creator. If you created you in the first place, and if you were born again, that is, recreated by him in the second instance, then you can trust him entirely with your soul. He is your creator, and he is your recreator. He is trustworthy. And that is a strengthening reality if you live by it. Restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and final point in our message today, establishment. Again, sufficient grace and peace. These are purposes of God reassuring his long-suffering church. Not only is he, purpose, is he working out his purpose to restore us, to confirm us, and to strengthen us, but he's also establishing us. And chapter 5 closes with these reassuring words. Verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace and peace, means of the same, are provided through a well-ordered church. God will establish the longevity and the endurance of his body of Christ when she is well-ordered and well-led. Thus, there is this call. Be established by biblically ordering yourselves. And do so recognizing that the example of shepherding and leadership primarily, preeminently comes from the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So those who are called to lead and to take some role in the initiative in the church are to be mindful of this, to not act as a world would exercise leadership, exercise power, assert control, and uh, you know, use leverage to their advantage. No, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering, but being examples to the flock. This all in light of the coming, the appearing of the chief shepherd. We are established as a church in such a way, when we are ordered according to biblical mandate, we are waiting well. Waiting for what? The chief shepherd's appearing. Now, the waiting parables I referenced, I think, in our last message, at the end of the book of Matthew, and the theme of the book of Peter is similar. And we described it this way. Waiting is dangerous. Waiting is dangerous. Jesus Christ left us. He didn't leave us without a promise. He left us with the attending Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the means of His Holy Word, obedience to the things that Peter's laid out, we have sufficient ground, we have sufficient source of grace and peace. But don't forget that waiting for the appearing of the Good Shepherd is dangerous. We cannot go into battle and leave the helmet of salvation lying in our barracks. We can't go in to the uh, crossfire uh, out in the world without being sufficiently armed with the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, as Paul lays out the armaments in the book of Ephesians. And how do we do this? How do we arm ourselves? How do we organize ourselves? How are we established as a church to wait well, even though it's dangerous? We do so by taking seriously these instructions to submit to God's purposes and preserving and continuing his, uh, to secure his church 
against the odds that face her unto the promise of his coming. And when he comes, if we are found faithful by the grace of God, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is awesome. And then he closes with another appeal. Goes on to say, be firm in your faith in so many words. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, you'll hear a lot of repeating themes. Be sober-minded, verse 8. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, and here's that phrase, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Another source of encouragement. Other countries, other churches in other countries are enduring far worse than we are now. Take heart. It's an evidence of the sufficient power of grace and peace by the working of the Spirit to preserve His church. Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will come full circle now to the heading and the outline of the book, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You are established when you are fitted to Jesus Christ in a flock that is ordered according to His word. You're established when you stand firm in your faith, resisting the devil with the tools that he supplies. And as you do so, and as you find your footing in him, this firmness and grace will be a mighty reassurance for you to endure whatever difficulties, grievous trials might come. Peter closes his book with the reassuring greeting. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It strikes me that the three sources of greeting are three examples of overcoming in spite of trial. The first greeting comes from Silvanus, whose scholars tell us is another name for Silas. And you remember that personal deliverance that Paul and Silas experienced in jail? Though in Philippi, for the crime of simply preaching God's word, they were thrown behind the bars there. What did God do? Kids, remind us. So Paul and Silas are in jail. They start to sing. What happens next? Earthquake. Earthquake. Then what happens? The jail breaks. And then Paul and Silas are free. Silvanus and Paul are standing there. No more shackles on their wrists. And the jail cell that once held them in a pile of rubble behind them and an incredible witness opportunity in front of them. The jailer about to kill himself. Wait, don't do it. And he stops, men and brother, brethren, what must I do to be saved? And then the glorious answer comes, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your whole household. And a baptism service ensues. So Silas knew what it was like to experience the delivering power of Jesus Christ through peril and suffering. But think about it. They were singing songs, gloriously worshiping. Perhaps it was on the Lord's Day, even though they were in jail. Now, if you were clamped in a dusty dungeon, it's nightfall, unjustly charged, held against your will, likely facing lashings, if not worse, maybe the last thing on your mind in the natural, in the flesh, would be to have a little worship service. But Paul and Silas had that bigger perspective at this time. Thus they glorified their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
And in that instance, he exercised his deliverance by causing the jail to be busted and them to be free to continue the purpose that he had called them. So that's one kind of deliverance that, that Silas had experienced. A second kind of endurance that is evidenced in these salutations is the church in Rome. Scholars tell us she was in Babylon is likely code language for the church in Rome. Rome is referred to as Babylon in spiritual or in scriptural symbolic terms. Babylon is the place of the most organized opposition against the people and purposes of God. And at the time of the writing of this letter, and in the years that would follow, that certainly was Rome. So the empire of Rome was the most organized place of opposition against the people and purposes of God. Nevertheless, did you notice? She who is in, at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So in spite of tyrannical, oppressive, Orwellian, to use a... Uh, to use a modern term, anachronistic is the term. Uh, uh, in spite of all those conditions, nevertheless, God had preserved a church. So that would be pressures from without. So one is delivered from a jail cell. The other is surviving in the midst of an oppressive culture. And the third example, Mark, there was tension. This was the guy who had to part ways with Paul. There was tension even within the ranks of the gospel ministry at the time. But nevertheless, the Lord continued his work even uh, in notwithstanding the internal friction that happened all the time. So these are great reassurances that when the Lord sets his mind to establish something, there is no power in heaven or hell, in li life or in death, principality, authority, you know, from the heights to the depths, from things past, present, or things to come, none of it is able to separate us from God's purposes to establish and preserve and ultimately glorify himself and as a result, his church. Is this a sufficient source of grace? Is this a sufficient source of peace? You better believe it. If we lack those things, the sense of peace and the reality of the power of grace, we have a book written for us to saturate our souls with its truth. So in these days, if you find yourself doubting that God has the power to reconcile you to him such that no one can separate you from the assurance of the love of Christ and the ground of your salvation, Spend time meditating, memorizing, reading, studying 1 Peter. If you have difficulty in your time right now, uh, recognizing that God has a sufficient source of grace for you to endure in spite of trials and what we might face in the near future, again, 1 Peter is what the doctor ordered as a prescription for these doubts. The church needed it then, the church needs it now. And recognize within these pages of God's authoritative word, sovereignly delivered, spiritually inspired, written down by the apostle of our faith, herein is a sufficient source for our own encouragement. As we close this morning, it seems only fitting that we would partake in communion today, does it not? If we are in the flock, if we are firm in the faith, if we are firm in grace, it is only because of the work of Jesus Christ on our account. It is because his blood was shed and his body was broken that the restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and establishment of the church is ours to claim. Only because Jesus Christ has satisfied the conditions to make this possible. Again, at the beginning of this message, during the introduction, we said that the gospel came to us by way of suffering. The suffering of Jesus Christ. And the suffering of Jesus Christ is pictured in these elements. Furthermore, this suffering, the work of Jesus, is strong enough to carry us through our own trials. And God has ordained these trials as the very means whereby we are transformed into his image 
from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. The book closes with this phrase, peace to all of you who are in Christ. I asked you this question last month and I ask it again. Are you in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that in your salvation, you are so identified with him that his experience becomes yours. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins if you are in Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, he assured your own resurrection if you are in Christ. When Jesus ascended before the right hand of the Father, he assured your own reconciliation and perfect communion one day with the Father to share in the marriage supper of the Lamb in glory one day. This is what it means to be in Christ. If you have confessed your sins, if you have placed your faith in Christ alone, if you have been born again to this living hope that I just described, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, that is a powerful reality. And you know that he is working to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And even his table today is a means whereby that can be fortified, reinforced in our, in our souls. We talked about through the course of the book, grounds for absolute certainty. Communion is another one. If there is absolute certainty that our imperishable inheritance is preserved in heaven one day, as we mentioned, there's absolute certainty knowing that the forever word of God is the foundation for truth. If there's absolute certainty in Jesus Christ, our chief cornerstone, if there's absolute certainty in the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, and if there's certain to be, certainty to be found that he has personal and specific intentions for his church through suffering, there is also certainty pictured in this meal today. And it's often stated like this, as sure as you taste the juice on your lips is as real as the shed blood of Jesus Christ is on your behalf. As sure as you taste and tangibly interact and take within to your digestive tract this body right here, just as real, just as corporal, just as incarnate was the very body of Jesus Christ slain on your behalf. If you are a believer, remember these grounds of assurance. Take great heart for them. We have pictured even in this meal sufficient grace and peace. Let us pray and we'll give instructions. Father, we thank you for your holy word that reminds us where to turn when the days are trying, that reminds us who we are in Jesus Christ, that gives us that mirror in which to look to see if we need sin, if we need to confess sin, repent, and turn to you, and also to remind us that in Christ Jesus we have such glorious promises that any trial in the meantime is uh, absolutely tiny. And as Paul says, it's just a passing affliction. It's something that is of little account compared to the eternal weight of glory, slight and momentary. We thank you for these truths. Lord, we also pray this morning as your gospel has been proclaimed that you would use it to call the lost to salvation, to turn from their sins, to repent, and to believe. And for those who uh, come to your table today, believers in this room, I pray that they would do so freshly thankful and in a heart of worship and reverence for the incredible price that was paid to secure our eternal inheritance. Thank you for your sufficient grace and peace through Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.